Welcome to Politics Done Right. I am your host, Egberto Willis. This is a progressive program that will take the mystery out of politics. This is the program that will encourage you to make sure government becomes we the people. Whether you are liberal, progressive, conservative, or otherwise, you get to hear your point of view. We are an independent media outlet that, unlike mainstream media beholden to corporations, we only owe allegiance. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it, all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. To you, remember, you can also send me a tweet at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S. That is at Egberto Willis. Let us engage. It is politics done right. Welcome to one more edition of Politics and Radamek Berto Willis, your host. Today, we are honored to have Mary Rickles. Mary Rickles is the Director of Communications and uh, Politics for Netroots Nation, the largest annual conference for progressives in America. Mary will discuss her path to her progressive philosophy as well as the goals of Netroots Nation. Welcome to Politics Done Right. Mary, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Happy to be here with you today. Look, I, I'm I'm great to have you here. I tell you, I was on the uh, Netroots uh, Nation app, and I saw an interview that you did with uh, the community is critical uh, with Lila Nordstrom and Kelly Therese, and it was like, wow, you were exactly the type of person that I wanted to talk to, especially with the work that I'm doing, uh, claiming that we can actually make people change from one way to the other. But anyhow, first of all, tell us a little bit about who is Mary Rickles. Well, I am um, an organizer at heart. Um, I grew up in the South um, in Alabama, and I now live in the Bay Area um, with my husband and my five-year-old son. Um, so uh, I've been involved with Netroots in some way, um, actually, since the very beginning. This will be our 18th yes conference. Um, so I've been involved as part of the team in, in some way or, or another um, since then. You know, what's interesting, right? And, and one of the things that I said when I when I listened to that podcast that I really wanted to talk to you is that you told me you grew up a conservative Republican family, the, the whole works. And you know, after getting out of uh, I, I, getting out, going to college and experiencing more of the world, it suddenly changed your thought process, the way you the, the way you think. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. So I grew up in Birmingham, Alabama. Um, and uh, as many people are there, uh, grew up very conservative. My parents, um, you know, were staunch Republicans. My dad still is. Um, and, you know, as the youngest of four kids, like I just grew up thinking my parents were right. Um, and, you know, listening a lot to a lot of Fox News and Rush Limbaugh on the way to school and things like that. And um, I remember a conversation that my brother and I had 
um, right around the time the first Gulf War was happening. And my brother was like, I don't agree with dad on this issue. And I was like, me either. Um, and so my brother and I would have these conversations about, hey, what do you think about, you know, this political issue or or what's happening in the world here? And like, my brother and I would have these little side conversations. And a lot of times we were like, that's not really what mom and dad you know, say, or, or what, you know, we're hearing on the news all the time. And so I just started reading a lot and and listening to other sources of news. And really around the time that I went to college, um, I just kind of started working on critical thinking and trying to take in information from as many sources as possible. And, um, you know, I, I grew up in a in a community and a family that was very rooted in the Baptist church. And in particular, like I found myself challenging like those beliefs around equality and humanity and, and things like that. And um, and just kind of at some point in college realized that I wanted to be on the side of of justice and I wanted to be on the side of uh of people who are fighting to make the world better for everyone, regardless of what religion you are, or regardless of what, you know, background you are, or color your skin is, or anything like that, um, that I just wanted to, to be more on the side of that than, um, than, you know, always fighting over, you know, what conservatives are supposed to think like, um, so, I mean, I still have my roots in the South. I, I love my family and I'm close with them, but you know, it, it's, it's a challenge sometimes when I go home because I I'll run into, you know, friends and they're like, Oh, well, you're, you're a Democrat now <laughs> and, <laughs> and things like that. And I'm like, no, I'm just progressive. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm for this issue or I'm, you know, against this issue. And um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it's a weird position to be in when you all of a sudden realize that like all the things you heard growing up didn't, you know, doesn't jive with what, where you are now and how you've grown into a person. But I've actually found that a lot of people I grew up with um, and quite a few people in my family have actually gone through a similar journey where, you know, there, there's like a small, very progressive, you know, minority in, in a lot of States, even the reddest of areas. You know, let me let me tell you what's interesting. You have your mother and your father and your father, very conservatives and, and conservative. And what you said is when you went out there, you started to read, you expand. What you really did is you expanded your horizons. You got outside of your comfort box. And what that tells me, however, is having the parents that you had as conservatives, conservative as they were, that that really didn't stop you. I mean, it, it tells me you had great parents, okay? And as much as uh, your parents are conservatives, it gave you the latitude to go out there and explore. They may not want to go exploring with you, but at least you had the latitude to go explore. So don't you think that you represent a large percentage of the population that can actually change? And whereas, you know, many of, many of the folks, let's say in the progressive intelligentsia, would act would believe that uh, maybe we should just leave folks that are conservative alone. Let's just forget about your dad. Let's just forget about, you know, all those family members that are conservative. That's not the, that's not what I share. I share the idea of leaving the door open with a platform for people to land on. What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I think, I think you can almost always find common ground with people. 
Um, I mean, my dad actually was a huge Trump supporter and like, I still, when I go home, my dad and I will get into conversations and I try, I try to leave political words out of it. We'll have conversations that are more values based about, you know, what the workforce should look like and, you know, how working moms are supported and just all kinds of different issues. And a lot of times I'll find my dad agreeing with me as long as I don't put the super, you know, politicized words into it. Um, you know, my dad, I, he, he grew up listening to conservative radio and that's like, that's all he intakes. So like, I don't fault him too much for, you know, for having that perspective. That's, that's literally like what he's constantly exposed to. And, um, you know, I think by and large, most people in this country want to find middle ground with people. Um, you know, people don't want to walk around just being angry all the time. Um, so I always try to just lead with, with empathy and with values first, and also just look at someone and say, wow, like, I really don't agree with them, but they're also a a fellow human being. You know, I don't know what's happening in their life. I don't know what's caused them to think this way or that way, but I can approach them as a person. um, Right. And I mean, that's, there are people in this world who are, you know, hateful and you know maybe maybe way way past the point of being able to find that common ground but by and large most people you know if you approach with kindness with grace with empathy um and and lead with values a lot of times you can find common ground and a lot of times like the world isn't as i think black and white as far as politics as like traditional media wants us to think like it's not all or nothing for most people you know, it's by design, actually. I mean, if we can keep people in cast, then the people on top can always get what they want. Um, interestingly, uh, talking about you can always approach people without using the keywords. I, I always tell the story about being in a Starbucks and speaking to a, a woman who had insurance issues, staunch Republican. I live in a staunch Republican area. And we started talking. And I yes, I was giving her leading questions or leading statements. But by the end of the discussion, everything that she said she wanted was Medicare for all. And I felt guilty as hell. And I'm like, you know, um, first of all, I'm a left wing progressive. And uh, I what you just described was was uh, Medicare for all. And she looked at me and she turned red face and looked at me with horror and then said, but you're so nice. It's amazing <laughs> that what happens is there's a caricature that's made of progressives too often. And in doing so, uh, people have their guards up. So when you state that you keep some keywords out of there, that's the magic, I think, so often that actually works, you know? Yeah. And there's caricatures on both sides. I mean, I, there are people right. who I, you know, I, I love dearly who are, you know, part of my childhood, you know, friend group or part of my family who, you know, are very conservative and like, I still like one of my dearest friends is, is very conservative, but she actually will call me sometimes and she'll be like, Mary, I really want to know what you think about this issue. And, and she listens and she's like, Oh, that's interesting. I didn't see it from that perspective. And, but she might push back and that's okay. And then I, you know, I'll counter that with my thoughts. And, and like, we end up having really great discussions because we come into the conversation with respect. Um, And so I think, you know, that's, that's, to me, that's been the best way to approach it is, and there have been people that I've, I've, you know, not that that's my mission, but like I have changed some people's minds about issues just by approaching it and saying, well, you know, this is, this is my approach and kind of 
why I believe this way. And a lot of times people will say, okay, well, I never, I never thought about it that way, but I agree with you. And, you know, I think if we would just take some of the, you know, hyper-partisanship out of it, um, we probably would, would be all, all be a lot happier. <laughs> I mean, you nailed it this morning on my KPFT show at, on uh, Pacifica Network, this guy called in and he was ready to attack, uh, attack on the things that I was talking about. And when we, st- I, first of all, I showed him, as he attacks, I showed respect. I, I never get mad at anybody. You can call me anything and it's, it'll be fine. And I told him, uh, you know, we started going over and I asked him a few questions. And by the end of the discussion, he, uh, it ended. It didn't end with him saying, uh, you're full of it. It ended with it saying, you give me a lot to study. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, some, some other progressives called in and I said, wait, don't get on this guy's case. I mean, look at how we left the conversation at least. I'm going to go ahead and take a look at that. And if you're on fact, hey, you're fine. But anyhow, Mary, you are you you are pretty much in charge of a lot of our the communications that go out for Netroots Nation, uh, that organization that brings all progressives from around the country, the largest one in in in, in the world. Um, why don't you uh, tell me a little bit about what Netroots Nation is about? What's the goal? of having an organization that have conferences every year to sort of uh, promote progressive values? Yeah, well, a lot of the people who attend Netroots Nation work online um, and they collaborate with other people that don't always get FaceTime. So really our goal is to provide a forum for folks around the country to be able to come together, to learn, to share stories, to get training, to network and to have fun. Um, you know, there's really, um, uh, a lot of, uh, a lot of cool, like connections that happen at Networks Nation, as you know, um, mm-hmm. as a long time attendee, like we have had people who have said, my organization got started with an idea at Networks Nation, you know, that came out of a hallway conversation. We've had people say, I decided to run for office and then go on to run. And we have one woman who came, I think maybe 12 years ago. Um, on a scholarship, decided to run for office. She got inspired to run for office. And she's now um, in her state legislature and has been for, I think, eight or nine years now. Um, We've had people tell us they've met their life partners there, um, you know, met other folks that they've collaborated with on campaigns, issue campaigns. Um, People have found jobs. So that's really at the crux of what we want to do. We want to provide a space for people to meet up. if you're not super familiar with Netroots, um, it is three days of a whole lot of really amazing content. We have panels, we have training sessions, uh, keynotes, um, lots of social events, and and the content really like encompasses almost every progressive issue out there. We'll have stuff on abortion access, on economic policy, on sort of 2022 campaign lessons, um, the importance of state legislatures. We'll have stuff that's more civic engagement. We'll have trainings for people who want to learn how, you know, to to get media for their organization or their issue. We'll have stuff that's more tech savvy. Um, So it's a really great place to come learn. get inspired, get some inspiration, get some connections, and then take that back to their, to their communities. I, it's an eight, look, I've been in it from the, from the time <laughs> it started when Marcus started a uh, daily coast and, it, and, and, 
and things came by. Now, interestingly, um, I'm there yearly on Radio Row. So for those that are listening right now, come on and uh, get an interview. I, I do a minimum of 25 interviews, usually around 48 to 55. So we'll 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 see how that runs this year. But it is it is the what you guys have put together, the leadership of the Netroots Nation conference is a conference unlike no other uh, and the camaraderie and the the not only learning but the social events at this conference mm-hmm. second to none uh so uh kudos to you and the team for uh what you've done year after year after year what's in store for net roots nation 20 uh 2023 and Tell us about uh, when it's going to be, et cetera. So it's all happening July 13th through the 15th in Chicago at the Chicago Hilton. Um, We have 150 breakout sessions on tap, like I said, on every issue imaginable. Um, Trainings for people who are brand new to politics and folks who have been in the movement for a really long time. Um, We'll have one really amazing, inspiring keynote every day. Our opening keynote, we're going to have the new Chicago mayor, Brandon Johnson, kind of anchoring that. On Friday, we'll have um, a keynote that's going to be anchored by um, Justin Jones and Justin Pearson, two of the Tennessee Three um, uh, folks. Um, And then on Saturday, we will have, I think it's nine members of Congress as part of that keynote. So um, we're going to have representatives uh, Pramila Jayapal, Jan Schakowsky, Summer Lee, Greg Kazar, Maxwell Frost, Ilhan Omar, uh, Chuy Garcia, Delia Ramirez. Um, they'll all be there, um, like I said, along with Brandon Johnson. And then we've got just some other really great folks who are, you know, elected officials in other capacities. We'll have Attorney General Keith Ellison, uh, Rob Bonta from California, um, Illinois' Attorney General Raul. Um, Michigan Lieutenant Governor Garland Gilchrist is going to be there. Um, folks who lead amazing organizations, Marcos from Daily Coast, Maurice Mitchell from Working Families Party, um, Tim Wise, the brilliant activist and writer, Kimberly Crenshaw. Um, so there's just some really amazing folks coming to share um, about their work and you know what's happening in, in the area of politics they work in. Well, it's going to be a great conference. Uh, I, I want to just put a, a quick number out there to those that are listening to us. Again, this is a progressive conference. And for those who don't know, this country is a progressive country by values. When you ask people what they want, the values that they expound are that of progressive. So this is a very important conference that covers all that America say that they want. Um, my last question is always the same. What would you have liked me to ask you that I didn't? Well, I think we covered a lot of things. I do want to say um, one thing that makes Netroots unique from other like business conferences or corporate conferences, conferences you might go to is that it is just a ton of fun. Um, people, our attendees come from all 50 states. And actually, we have international attendees who come every year. Um we have attendees who are teenagers. We have attendees who are, you know, in their 70s and 80s, um, come from all walks of life. And one of my favorite things to do is just walk the hallways, pop into the exhibit hall and just listen to the conversations because you hear people saying, 
oh, well, you're from my hometown. I'm really passionate about this issue. And you hear people matching up ideas and, and brainstorming with one another. And then we also have, as you know, some really fun social events. We have an annual karaoke event that is um, yes. super fun, <laughs> a pub quiz that's been going for 18 years now. Um Lots of, you know, happy hours and, and you know, different places where you can connect. Someone last year told me that they described Netroots Nation as progressive summer camp um, or summer camp for people who love politics. And I think that's a good description, yes, right? That is. Um, it definitely someone is. else said it's like drinking from a fire hose. Um, and I said, yeah, <laughs> kind of is. there's so much content that it's almost a little yeah. overwhelming to figure out what to go to. But I promise you, if you come, you'll find someone um, to connect with, you'll, you'll find someone either, you know, passionate about an issue that you're passionate about someone from your area, um, someone from your walk of life. So, um, it's a really great event. Um, I tell people don't ever say Netroots Nation is not for you because there, there's something for everyone on the agenda. Um, and anyone can attend. Uh, we have tickets that start, um, we have a very low youth rate that starts at, um, I think it's a little under a hundred dollars. Um, we have an activist rate for folks who aren't, you know, going on behalf of their organization. Um, and then we also have scholarships. So if you need a scholarship, um, if you go on our website, there's a link to apply for a scholarship. We don't want price to ever, you know, keep anyone out. Um, but, you know, everyone is welcome and, and we would love to see you there. Mary Rickles, Director of Communications and Politics for Netroots Nation, the largest annual conference for progressives in America. Thank you so kindly for having been on Politics Done Right. Thanks for having me. The news of the day is, is serious. We're talking about the Supreme Court decision, the affirmative action that has so far hit schools. Of course, uh, the military got protected. You know, we're going to educate everybody to go into the foxhole. But anyhow, um, in, in, in discussing this this morning at KPFT, we had a lot of ideas, honest discussion about this. And then I heard from uh, my, my good friend, uh, former, our, our former host of the show now on hiatus, the Tim Danahy Show, and former uh, board of director of uh, Coffee Party. I just wanted him to have a point of view here, which I kind of like. So anyhow, welcome to Politics Done Right once again. Tim, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Always good to join you and exchange ideas with you, Guido. It's a better place, I assume, and I'm sure that I'm a better man after uh, talking with you. Well, we always we always have good, frank discussions on these issues. As you know, the Supreme Court pretty much got affirmative action at universities, public and private, with the last decisions. And, uh, you know, uh, first of all, what's your thoughts on, on what occurred? You, you have to look at it in the context. And, and I, I am, I always say, a tactical progressive. And, um, you know, I, I'm a white guy. Uh, certainly didn't suffer in my, my upbringing. Um, and, but as progressive as I am, you kind of look at uh, affirmative action as, you know, you can look at it as a necessary evil or you can actually look at it as necessary to prevent evil. You like to think in terms of we're all equal. But, you know, as I mentioned with the small animal farm, some people are more equal than others. And that's that's the need for affirmative action or, or the intent. But the Supreme Court has essentially said constitutionally, we are all equal. And 
that has a, um, a theoretical, yeah, we are all equal, but in practice, it's not reality of uh, this whole thing. And so um, it provoked me to thinking they've taken away affirmative action, but I'm looking at this at Egberto as saying, okay, I'm okay with the theory, but what do we do now for the various injustices and inequalities which still occur? We can't be affirmative, but you know, I, I offered to you this morning and, and uh, you know, I, I, you've had an excellent conversation this morning and um, based on, on your comments now, then, then I can offer what I think that Biden and other progressives can do. Well, you know, uh, and, and it was intriguing. I mean, uh, you, first of all, you accept the notion that, in fact, in as much as we preach equality, we don't, or equality, equity, we don't really have it. And since the Supreme Court have removed the policies that can affirm what needs to be done, I, I, I like the way you presented now, what are the options? You can't fight it from the side of affirmation. So let's fight it from this side. Go ahead. Well, uh, let me just kind of approach it how I would do it if I were Biden on this. And, and, I, and I would say, um, okay, you know, Supreme Courts have said we're all supposed to be treated equal. Um, and, and, and yes, we're Americans. And, and we are all equal. And they've taken only affirmative action from us. And so, um, you know, if I were Biden, I'd say, well, I, I'm going I'm, I'm to make sure that we are all equal. And I'm going to increase enforcement of equal, in, equal employment opportunity violations, you know, uh, blacks, uh, LGBTQ, uh, race, whatever. We're all equal. Okay, we're equal. I'm going to make sure that we all have equal access to voting. I'm going to make sure that we all have uh, access to real estate. No more red line. We're going to step up enforcement of that. Uh, you want equal Supreme Court? Uh, I'm going to make sure that all financial applications are uh, equal. In fact, I'm, I would, if I were Biden, I'd say we're going to make it so equal that we're not only going to do it on income, we're going to do it on asset evaluation and, and offer incentives that way because we know the minorities uh, on an asset basis are, well, on an income basis, they're disadvantaged, but on an asset basis, and uh, you want equal? Uh, fine, we'll do everything on the basis of equal race, equal rights, we're all Americans, but when whenever we do incentives, it's going to be economic-based. And I acknowledge that much of it is going to go to minorities. Uh, based on our, you know, I, and, and, and let's do this economically and come through the back door to help disadvantage people uh, without I, calling them out by race. And so um, you want equality, Supreme Court? You're going to get it because I'm, gonna, I'm going to uh, uh, enforce inequality. And, and and that's the way I would approach it, Egberto, as a way to deal with with an unfortunate Supreme Court decision. Let me let me tell you something. I want to make one corollary to what you said, um, because I want the audience to actually uh, get where your heart really is. Uh, you're saying, uh, Supreme Court, you want equal? Well, this is what we're going to do. Reality is um, the Supreme Court 
has asserted, just like Katanji uh, Jackson said, they have pretty much asserted that equality occurs. I don't remember the word that she used. So since you have asserted that reality, you are saying, Tim Danahy, that you're going to ensure that the Supreme Court's assertion of that reality is, in fact, real. And now you are the, the, what you are proposing is pretty much telling America, OK, we are really going to hit inequality, equality from the bull's horn. I tell you something, Tim, uh, believe it or not. When when I after we got off the phone this morning and I started thinking about what you said. Um, you said you're a tactical progressive. The reality is that is progressive. Um, let, let me, I want to get off the race subject for a bit to tell you why I think so, so much of that, of what you're saying, actually going aggressively on these issues. In America, when we have high inflation that we know is real, most of it really caused by the corporate sector, corporate greed, et cetera. And the way the government has chosen to solve it is not to tell corporations to behave themselves, but to penalize people on the back end or, or, or to tell people on the back end, if, if you pay higher interest rates, the corporations are going to be forced to do X, Y, Z. Affirmative actions affirm that corporations have to do a certain set of things to affect a certain outcome. You're saying, okay, since Supreme Court you are saying that a certain outcome, in your opinion, by fiat, is there. No, okay, you, you're the law of the land. We are the ones who execute it. We are going to make sure to execute that reality that you've said. I think, uh, I, think it, I, I think if you take a look at that and analyze it from a progressive point of view, Tim, <laughs> that probably gets results even faster. I think so. And then you mentioned the corporate profits, which in anticipation of another Supreme ruling that also addresses issues of equality, you know, the forgiveness of student loans. And I'm going to speak as your advocate. And you just say, well, people willingly went into these loans to finance education. We kind of say, well, maybe we shouldn't forgive them. And, and bear me out on this one, uh, because what I'm telling you right now is appalling. And so, but let's let's tie the two together. Okay, the Federal Reserve can give financing at 0.25%, one quarter of 1%. Let us forgive it. Well, I am going to, if I were right, say, we are going to make these no interest loans or, or do the same equal financing that we give the big banks. You want equal, can't forgive? Well, we can support this. They'll still have to pay it back, but at least it's not subject that banks are doing to students and student loans. We should all be invested in supporting education states. And um, if people want to get a $70,000 school to study Greek archaeology, God bless them. You know, um, they can take out the loan. It should be zero or near zero, and they can deal with the financial implications of paying it back. We should not allow people to unduly profit off of these decisions. Anti-education, um, and you never know what we're going to learn. That, you know, the artificial and Greek archaeology or whatever. Uh, we, we, artificial intelligence just decoded Phoenician tablets, and we find out that 
um, the Phoenicians knew trigonometry 20, uh, 2,500 years before the Greeks did, or 1,500 years before the Greeks. There's a value in that. But here we are making judgments on it. Go for that education, but support it, but let's not profit off. And so that is equal. You want equal? You don't want affirmative action? Well, no more affirmative action for banks then. Let's make it equal. Banks are people. We're all people. And, uh, and let's give them equal would be the way that I would approach it if I were uh, uh, Biden and the administration. And I think it would be hard for Republicans, again, tactically, to dispute that. Well, wait a minute. We don't want, we don't want that equal. You know, it would be hard to uh, it would be a winning fight because I think it would appeal to the inherent fairness of most American people. Tim Donahue, a good friend of mine, a guy with a point of view, former director of the Coffee Party USA. Thank you for your commentary. I really wanted to get your point of view. You know how much respect I have for you. Always an honor to be on your show. Thank you, Alberto. I want to answer a few things here with regards to uh, Medicare for all, because I think people need to get the right kind of answer. What irks me most of all is that everybody here that is speaking out against Medicare for all was coerced, was convinced into denying arithmetic, was convinced into denying math. Rudnan, I know you're bringing up a lot of studies that prove that Medicare for all uh, is would save a lot of money, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the case is a lot more simple than that, right? The first, the first concept that I want to get out of people's minds is that somehow private insurance give people choices. That is false. So it is false that private insurance give the customer a choice. You get the choice of picking which private insurance you want. And then after you've made the choice of which private insurance you want, they decide what care you are going to get. It is tantamount to saying, which slave master do I want? Which, which master do I want to be as a slave? Private insurance does not give choice. They tell you what doctor you can see, what drugs you can use. So I want to dispel that, that particular thought process first. Private insurance does not give you choice. It gives you choice of which master. It gives you choices. Who, which company would you prefer to screw you? That's number one. Number two, for those who say that Medicare for all is an authoritarian concept. It, is for, it couldn't be the furthest thing from the truth because standard Medicare, not Medicare Advantage. Medicare Advantage is nothing more than private insurance in sheep's clothing. And let me back up a second. Private insurance in the past, in the 40s, in the 50s, they refused to cover old people or if they covered old people, they charged them three times the price. Now, private companies have coerced our government to pay them more per policy to insure older folk. And what that simply means is that we are subsidizing rich fat cats, executives, and shareholders of these 
private insurance companies. Number three, the idea that somebody would say, if we got Medicare for all, it would bankrupt us. That is tantamount to saying that we don't have enough resources to cover all Americans' health care. And as such, we relegate a few of our people to die. Because if we are saying we cannot create an environment where everybody has health care, it means we're saying only those who can afford health care will get health care. And thus, we relegate the others to die. Number three. Now, let's go to number four. Number four. To accept that private insurance, we're not talking about, we're talking private insurance now. We have to, to believe that private insurance can somehow be less expensive than public insurance is asking you to not think critically. It is asking you to forget about arithmetic. Whenever you have several insurance companies, Every insurance company must have its own CEO, CFO, its own databases, its own buildings, its own infrastructure, uh, shareholder uh, dividends, uh, executive pays and bonuses. The people who sell the product gets a whole big piece of the action. The, the amount of overhead to pay a bill under private insurance is humongous. Basic arithmetic says... If you take out the middleman, that private insurance company, and use all those benefits that even if you had 10% waste in the system, which would be billions upon billions of dollars, it would still be less expensive than private insurance. These are mathematical facts. This is, these, these things are not up for debate. These are simple mathematical facts. Now, uh, Jack Smith or Smith said made a comment that then should give people pause. Well, if we decide to have Medicare for all, we would get less services. Again, you're defying math. First of all, you assume that services come at the volition of private companies. That is that is demonstrably false. Most drugs. Most technologies, including this new drug that's about to make the drug companies a bunch of money, the new diet drug pill that seems to be successful in having people lose weight. All of these drugs had their genesis at universities or provided by grants. All of them. I didn't say some. I said all of them. Drug companies, corporations, they do not take risks. Risks are taken at universities where we, the people, the government pay. The corporations take what's called calculated risks. What are calculated risks? After we have a good feeling that this stuff may be successful, we then go ahead and invest into bringing it to market. But it gets worse. Now, there are times when drugs that, that, seem, to be, that seem to be successful will not turn out to be successful. That's true. However, let's be clear. Even when a company loses money for a drug that was not successful, they still don't lose the money that they use to develop that drug. Why? Because after they 
have failed with a particular drug and let's say invested a few billion dollars in it, they recover every penny of those billions of dollars in the form of tax write-offs for the losses. We have been hoodwinked into believing. Look, I just gave you a cogent, 100% fact-based statement. We will still have people that decide to deny math. We will still have people that decide to deny the reality that if you have to pay a lot of other people to administer this thing, it's going to cost more. That you, if you have many insurance companies, that doctor's office is a lot more expensive. You, you pay more to a doctor because that doctor has to hire more people who find which plan, which insurance they can bill, etc. So my friends, all around, all around, what those are denying Medicare for all, uh, universal health care, they're simply wrong. Simply wrong. Everything that I've just stated is corroborated by facts. You can look it up. I don't ask you not to look it up. I want you to look it up because those of you who deny these statements that I've just made are the ones who, in fact, are carrying water for those who are screwing you, your family, your relatives. Now, John Smith says that I am wrong. Give me a call at 281-823-7747 and in your own words, detail specifically, factually, mathematically why it is that you think I'm wrong. So please give me a call, uh, 281-823-7747. You think I'm wrong. Make your point. Make your case. The thing about it is, I am absolutely sure that I'm right. You know why? Because numbers don't lie. Numbers don't lie. Corporations lie. Corporations fool because they simply care about their bottom line. Uh, Daniel Ledo says, notice Egberto never talks about the billions of pharmaceutical companies make with the vax. Never hear. No, I do. I do talk about that. It's a ripoff. I spoke about what they're doing with the, the vaccines. Now, I do believe it's a ripoff. Daniel Ledo, that's not true. The pharmaceutical companies are thugs. They are thugs, including the ones who make the vaccines that all of us depend on. They are thugs. Anything else you'd like to know about that, Mr. Ledo? Anything else you'd like to know? The biggest crooks in this country are heads of corporations. The, the, the petty thief that goes into a 7-Eleven and steals something, that's not a problem. The petty thief that picks one person's pocket, it's bad, but it only affects one person. The health care companies, the pharmaceutical companies, they are massive thugs. They are massive thieves. You know, if we had Medicare for all, we're, as my friend in Canada that I'll meet again at Netroots here, you have a card. You just have that card and go in for medical care. My friend in Canada, he, when he came out, he said, you know what's an interesting thing, Egberto? When we have to see a doctor, the last thing on our minds are, what is it going to cost? We go see our primary care guy. Our primary care is like that dispatcher. And that dispatcher sends us where we need to get, whether it's be a specialist or otherwise. 
John Carter says, if we had Medicare for all, we wouldn't need all these schemes to fill the holes. Exactly. Michael Rudden says, Egberto, our, bro- our broken private healthcare system kills in excess of 70 million Americans per year, mostly due to the denial of coverage, prescription price gouging, and underinsuring. We can do better. We have the money to do better. We have the money to do better. The reason why we don't do it is because we have, first of all, gullible folks that, are, that, that, that choose not to understand math. They choose not to understand the concept of, of being taken advantage of. And when they get taken advantage of, they just said, please do it again. It's that simple. I made the cogent argument, a fact-based cogent argument from a math standpoint. It is impossible for private healthcare that has profit, shareholder value, and duplicate services to be less expensive than a single-payer system. It's mathematically impossible. But, you know, some folks will choose not to accept that reality. It's a mathematical impossibility. Many Democrats think that because, you know, Texas is a majority Latino state right now. Many Democrats believe that anytime you have Latinos in power, you know, in, in the majority, whenever you have minorities in, in, that make up a plurality or a majority, that somehow that, is, it, that means they are likely to get the vote. They could not be more wrong. And I can tell you this, not from reading books or reading articles, during the canvassing time, during elections, I do canvass in Latino areas. For Bernie Sanders, I canvassed in Las Vegas in Latino communities, at Latino grocery stores, etc. cetera. Uh, and during the last election, I, I went into, um, I don't remember what ward here in Houston, to go ahead and do that. Bridge MCP, thank you so kindly for your, t- for your support. She says, I may not agree with all right people say, but I would, would stop in the rain, uh, but I would stop in the rain to change a flat for them. I believe they're good people as I hope they will about me. And you know what? Yes. The answer is yes. I've been to all kinds of uh, areas where people eventually knew that I am this liber, this progressive dude, and we still break bread together. At my, 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 uh, my Starbucks, they all know who I am, and we break bread together. So continuing with the, with the notion of Latino votes. Thank you very much, Bridge MCP. Continuing with the issue with the Latino vote. The Latino vote does not belong to Democrats. The black vote does not belong to Democrats. You have to earn the vote. Irrespective, if you want people to vote for you, earn the vote. Don't listen to those ivory tower guys in Washington who are telling you demographics is the answer and why these are the way to do things. And you know what? Today, uh, MSNBC had a, an analyst, a, a Latino analyst, who knows exactly the reality of what we're talking about here. I want you to listen to this. And then we'll take it on the other side. 
Analysts say Democrats need to do even more if they want to win the 2024 election. The Koch Political Report highlights a study that analyzes Latino voter trends in key battleground states. Amy, Amy Walter writes, quote, it paints a worrisome picture for Democrats who may be hoping that increased Latino turnout in 2024 will cement their gains in key battleground states. For years, the working assumption among many campaign professionals was that Latino voters stayed home in midterm elections, but showed up in presidential elections. As such, a district or county with a significant Latino population would perform much better for Democrats in a presidential year than a midterm. But Republican candidates can make significant inroads with these voters, especially if they put a full court persuasion press on them while Democrats only engage these voters at the very end of the campaign. Joining us now, communications director of the Libre Initiative, a national advocacy group for Latino Americans, Wadi Gaitan. Thank you so much for being on. So what is the state of Latino support for Democrats? Are, are, are Democrats losing Latino voters? Uh, yes, they definitely are. I mean, the reality is I think many Democrats thought that that uh, voting demographic was baked in in their favor. And what we're seeing is actually that more Latinos are actually identifying as independent, as a swing voters. They're really willing to hear from both parties. Uh, it's important for Democrats to understand that this is a loss in the sense that before they could sort of count at these voters and these universities as sort of a get out the vote uh, demographic that yeah. towards the end of the election, they could just make that call and they would show up. But the reality is that is not the case. They're going to have to court the vote and they're going to have to work hard for it. So sort of give me a snapshot of the mindset here of uh, the Latino voters who are um, deciding that they're going to be independents or may not vote Democrat. In that mindset, what are the issues that are drawing them away from the Democratic Party? Yeah, I would say it's a, it's a couple of issues. But one thing when, when you, when you talk to Latinos across the country, when you look at the polls, one of the biggest things is the economy. Inflation specifically has created a barrier towards the American dreams for Latinos. The American dream is more expensive for them. So they want to hear what are the policies? What has the president done? And what is he going to promise to actually do when it comes to the topic of uh, the economy? Uh, a lot of the polls also show that in, in general, Latinos view uh, their trust towards Democrats as being the party that can actually deliver on the economy, that can deliver on issues like crime and like public safety is lower than the trust that they have uh, for Democrats. That doesn't mean that Republicans don't have barriers on their end, but these are also the barriers uh, that Democrats are facing when it comes to courting that issue. Also, when it comes to immigration, Democrats have made the right promises, but have not been able to deliver on those, process, on those promises for various reasons. But Latinos now view this topic as not necessarily the party uh, that is going to be able to deliver. So they're not just looking for the promises. They're looking for results on the topic of immigration. So, Wadi, obviously the Latino vote, not monolithic, uh, different people, whether country of origin or where they live in the United States changes their viewpoints. But let's just focus on one state in particular real quick. It's Florida, which yeah. has trended away from Democrats uh, in recent cycles. This idea that the anti-socialism argument the Republicans are putting forth has been successful. Do you see anything that could push Florida back towards the blue column or do you think it's pretty safely red right now? 
I think it's safely read, but Republicans have made a lot of work in that area. So if Democrats genuinely want to win over Hispanics across Florida, they're going to have to have a strategic targeted approach. Right now, you're talking about uh, that there's the distinct backgrounds, right? Uh, Orlando specifically, the amount of Puerto Ricans who have moved there in the last four to five years from the island, even individuals from areas from New York who have moved to Orlando, have to understand that this demographic is completely different than the Cuban population, Venezuelan and Colombian uh, in Miami. Also, in, in areas of South Florida, there is a growing Mexican population in the areas like Homestead. So not only is it coming to these groups, showing up early, but it's making the specific case of why these different groups uh, should vote for them. Something that the Democrats really have to do is go beyond, again, that traditional uh, four-year voter that only votes in presidential races. Uh, there's approximately a million Latinos uh, who are, are, are turning 18 every year. That's projected to be for the next 15 years. Th- these are U.S.-born Latinos. These are people who can register to vote. The case has to be made to them early on why. These folks aren't necessarily registering, again, as Democrat or Republican. Their party affici- uh, affiliation isn't their identity. They're going as independent. The case has to be made. And Florida is very unique because Republicans have made uh, a lot of uh, headway and they've had the results to show for it. Okay, uh, so as it turns out, it is imperative if Democrats want the Latino vote that they work for it. Get out of the ivory towers. Who makes you believe you know what the Latino vote is all about? Most of the times, they don't. Another thing here, Carl Cox nails it. When Carl Cox says, Democrats in ivory tower will lose again and again if they continue to ignore both minority voters and progressive voters. Breed says, Egberto, how come they constantly uh, speak of the issue yet do nothing? Because, again, it's easy to talk about something. It's hard to go into the community and work the community. When we went out there canvassing the community, people were, uh, as you know, I, I did most of the Spanish speaking in, in these communities. And what you found is that people were, first of all, apprehensive. They didn't want to get into the into the um into the electoral system because again they were they were distressed they they felt alienated and also they were scared they you know most families a lot of latino families in some of these poorer areas are mixed families meaning half of them or some of them are 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 are, are american citizens some of them are green card holders and some of them are undocumented right it's a it's a it's a combination thereof and you know then then there's another thing about uh, latinos as well Latinos uh, uh, suffer the same disease that many minorities have in in attempting to move up forward. They look at some get ahead and they look at those behind them as a problem because they hate that people are viewing them through the eyes of the new immigrants. It's a it's a very complex dynamic. In fact, I have a I speak to a lot of folks that I go around the, 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 the my town and I talked to some of the guys that are cutting the grass or whatever. And one of the guys who had a crew, but he was undocumented, he looked at me and he said, you know something, Egberto? Um, I, I, you know, you actually stopped by and talked to us and, and all of that as we were speaking in Spanish. He said, the truth of the matter is the people that, that hurts us the most are some of our own Latinos who, number one. So, I mean, there, there's a message from Brother uh, the Duck that quacks that says, you mean Latinos support cages for their relatives? No, they don't support cages for their relatives, but they don't mind the relatives of others in cages. Many times that's what you find. And uh, uh, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a very complex dynamic 
that is self-hate, not wanting to be judged by the lesser of you, meaning the ones who have just got here or the ones who are not yet fully successful. The dynamics is amazing, and the Republicans, as usual, know exactly how to expand or uh, extort that, not extort, um, exploit that dynamic. But it, it goes a bit further. When you go to Spanish AM radio or, or Spanish radio, there's a lot of lies that you'd hear from the right wing on these radio stations. And I would be listening to it, and I'm like, how comes our Democratic Latino uh, Latino folks who understand what's going on on this radio aren't in their communities a lot making mention of all this stuff. They don't. They're not doing the footwork. Texas would be a blue state if folks did the footwork. If folks did the footwork, we'll be a democratic state. Chris Christie nails both Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis. Why? Uh, Ron DeSantis put out an ad. And the ad was uh, was I I looked at the ad as some sort of soft macho driven soft porn uh, attacking Donald Trump on 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 policies that have nothing to do with helping the American people. Well, Chris Christie had a good attack on both of them, and he said they are absolutely doing nothing. Chris Christie actually sounded in that little snippet, in that just little between those few words, like a progressive. In other words, you guys are doing nothing. Uh, to solve the problems at all. And I want you to listen to how he, he, he did it. The DeSantis campaign tweeted a new video hitting President Trump for celebrating Pride Month, touting DeSantis' anti-LGBTQ record as governor. I know you've seen this video. Are you comfortable with it? I'm not comfortable with it, and I'm not comfortable with the way both Governor DeSantis and Donald Trump are are moving our debate in this country. You know, we have nine and a half million children in this country every night who go to bed hungry. Um, we have 21% of our, our students in the 10th grade saying that they're using hard, illegal drugs. Um, and this is the kind of stuff that we're talking about. Um, it, this is what I mean, Dana, that we're trying to make this country and their debate is trying to make this country smaller. They're trying to divide us further. We have big, big issues to be talking about. And and this type of video does nothing to to address those issues. Um, and it is a it is a teenage, you know, food fight between Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump. And I don't think that's what leaders should be doing. Um, and it certainly doesn't make me feel inspired um, as an American on the Fourth of July weekend to have this type of back and forth uh, going on uh, at all. Uh, and, and it's wrong um, to be doing it. And it's narrowing our country and making us smaller. I want a country that is going to be bigger and going after the big issues that will make every American feel better about themselves. Chris Christie on this one, he nailed it. But again, we all know that it's just an act. We need to make sure a progressive Democrat is elected. I hope you enjoyed those stories. You know what time it is. My name is Egberto Willis. This is Politics Done Right. And you guys know how I end this baby. I am what? Out! Out!